It's the mechanisms and processes that set user research in motion. I would actually also say that it's about scaling the impact of the craft. everyone thanks for tuning into nodes of design to help support our mission spread knowledge we have a very special guest on today's episode let's welcome bridget metzler a research ops lead at australian government department of agriculture water and environment bridget led the user research library at services australia alongside chairing several government communities of practice she is also the co-chair of research ops community a global community of people discussing research ops bridget also hosts a research ops podcast where they have five side chats with researchers talking all about research ops in this episode bridget had shared great insights on research ops and its importance and we also discussed on what's a framework for research ops and how can people get started with it we then discuss on the eight pillars and common components of research ops and how could researchers implement and scale research op in their companies and institutions in the end we concluded the show by bridget sharing her insights on future of research ops and the various growth opportunities for junior researchers in research ops hope you guys enjoyed this episode and on every friday we release new episodes episodes with different creative leaders from around the world to help you better understand different concepts related to design so don't forget to tune in into notes of design every friday with that being said happy designing everyone hi bridget welcome to notes of design it's pleasure hosting you today on our show Thanks so much for having me. Really looking forward to having a chat and uh, talking about research ops. Wonderful, Bridget. So how was your day? Uh, it was really busy. <laughs> yes, very busy. Uh, lots of, I think we've got about 15 teams that we're supporting now. So always lots to do. That's great, Bridget. So if you could give a brief about yourself to our audience mm-hmm. out there. Yeah, for sure. So I am the Research Operations Lead at the Department of Agriculture, Water and the Environment. That's an Australian government department. Uh, I also happen to be the co-chair of the, of the Research Ops community, which is a global group of about 9,000 people, all getting together from 62 countries to talk about research operations. That's wonderful. So what was your journey into research and how did you start? And what are your tips to the beginners on how to start? Yeah, well, actually, I think um, the first thing I'll say is that I'm not really a researcher. So I I mean, I do research uh, and sometimes try it out calling myself a researcher. I'm not sure that I feel really comfortable to say that yet. So So I've done quant user research And I've been doing research itself since 2014 only. So that's, you know, uh, recently I had um, a mentoring session with someone who's about the same age as me. And she said, I feel like uh, I I can't get into the industry because I don't have the right experience. And I said, oh, goodness me, my first role in user research was actually in 2017. So not that long ago. Um, What I would say is that you, you bring a whole bunch of other things to the table Um, So you don't have to, you know, you can't get 20 years worth of experience just like that. So think about what you bring to the table. Uh, For me, I had many, many years working in customer uh, service and then working as a a trainer of adults. And, you know, I was a data analyst and then I was um, an academic researcher. So there's a whole bunch of stuff that built up to make me into someone who can do user research tips for beginners. Um, Just ask 
Uh, it's amazing to me how many people are willing to help and answer questions. Uh, there's a lot of user research communities out there. Obviously, the Research Ops community has a lot of UX researchers as well. Um, and so there is a methods channel, for example, so people can talk about methods. It's a mentoring channel. There's heaps of things like that. There's a lot to read. So um, I would start by reading, asking, being humble. Thank you, Bridget. So let's begin our episode today with Research Ops. So what is Research Ops and what is its importance? Yeah, so look, it's really easy to answer that question because back in 2018, we got together a lot of people uh, to work out exactly what Research Ops is. So we made a definition for it and that is it's the processes, the mechanisms and processes that set user research in motion. I would actually also say that it's about scaling the impact of the craft. So not necessarily to go faster or do more, but to scale that impact up. So if you've done some research, you might have done some slower research, you might want to see how can you get the most out of what you've done. So I think uh, it's important for a few reasons. One is that researchers bear a lot of extra unseen hidden work that slows them down. It holds them back and in some cases also keeps them quiet. So, you know, user research um, can be better utilised as well and, and made use of just like other forms of research, but none of us have any problem with going and using some research that we find at the library. Why would we not do the same for user research? And I guess thirdly, Research Ops has several highly technical disciplines um, held within it. So there's knowledge management, procurement, legal and ethical factors, training and capability. If you want to do all that stuff well, getting professionals to concentrate on that allows researchers to concentrate on their actual field of expertise, which is research. Thank you, Bridget. So what is the framework for research ops and how to get started with it? Mm. So the framework for research ops, there's, there's a few frameworks going around. Um, we all started with the what is research ops. There's a beautiful map that looks like flowers and that came from um, all of the data that we produced as a community and going through uh, the what is research ops project, which is a project we did in 17 countries um, and we did 33 workshops. So that's there. There's also the eight pillars of user research. And I think that's a good place to start. Um, when we, we realised that we needed to sort of show how this fits into the work that researchers do every day. Um, so we had a taxonomy for what is research ops. That's what made the map. And that was Emma Bolton's taxonomy. Uh, and so in the board, Emma, Holly, Tomomi and I got together to work out how do we reframe our thinking? So in the end, Emma came up with eight pillars from those conversations. Um, and that's been viewed 31,000 times now. So I think it must resonate really well. And I think it's a good place to start. But if you're trying to apply that in your own workplace, that's actually a little bit tricky, isn't it? You sort of step back and go, okay, well, that seems nice. How do I do it in real life? So while I've been grappling with that problem, I, I developed this thing called the Pace Layers Matrix, and that addresses the, those aspects of it. So the reason it's tricky is that the ops that you need for each research method are actually going to be different. Um, so it depends on your organization's current focus and where they want to be focusing in the future as to where you get started. So it's such a complex one. I think you probably need a whole other podcast for it. Um, um, but I would say start with the eight pillars and then step back and have a think about how does that fit into my organization? A lot of the time it'll be recruitment, 
it'll be knowledge management, uh, it'll be governance. Those are, are, are some big, <laughs> big ticket items. That's wonderful, Bridget. So what are those eight pillars and common components of research ops? Um, well, they are, there's less technical ones. So there's uh, environment, which is what does the environment look like at my work? Um, there's organizational context, um, the scope of the work. So the scope of your work is going to be different depending on the type of company you work for. The scope is different in government, for example. Um, then there's the the technical, technical ones. There's um, data and knowledge management, there's governance, uh, there's recruitment and admin, and then there's uh, how to get the tools for researchers to do their job. Those are all very um, technical and those are all of the common aspects across all of research. Everyone needs that, even if you don't do user research. So how could researchers implement and scale research jobs in their companies or institutions that they're working in? <laughs> That's the, it's the $64 million question, isn't it? Um, I think the most important thing you can do is, is to start. One of the most common things I hear, you know, people call me or um, want to have chats with me fairly regularly and, and everyone feels a little bit embarrassed about where they're at. And I would say to that, um, you know, having a daggy spreadsheet is is uh, is not a bad place to start. So what's important is, is to start to think about it. Um, notice what you're doing that's repeatable. Um, have a think about can you get together and, and agree that, hey, this is a repeatable thing. We should all use the same consent form. Why? Am I producing a new one every single time? Those kinds of things start with what I call the small O ops, which is just getting those templates, tools and guides in place. And then you can start to think about actual scale, which requires that really strategic approach, looking at the scope and career paths and all those kinds of things. So Bridget, if you could please tell us about what is user research libraries and how these libraries help and in the organizations. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, so I, I I do love a good library. Um, I would never have guessed I would turn out to be almost like a librarian. As a kid, I wanted to be a librarian <laughs> and here I am. So uh, user research libraries are an interesting thing. Um, in the research ops community in 2019 and 20, we did uh, a project actually, which we're still writing up because, um, because you know, COVID and everything else that happens um, just makes everything take forever. But anyway, um, we did a project in looking at research repositories and research libraries and what's the state of, of the practice in, in the world. And there are some interesting things that we learned um, that I can talk to you about. about. Um, I think, first of all, I am definitely of the opinion that having a user research library radically transforms how you think about user research. And I think um, we underestimate it. And I think it's great that we underestimate it because people just let it happen. <laughs> because they don't know that, that actually they're about to change their entire world. Um, and, and it can change in really interesting ways. Um, I'm really interested in change and transformation. And so I, I do like the fact that we can so easily change people's minds. Um, and so how it does uh, change an organisation is the first thing is when we do user research, we tend to just do some research and then we um, hand over the findings and the insights. Um, we might use that to deliver um, something. We might, you know, go through a, a service design delivery process to, you know, do discovery and alpha, beta and live and produce a thing. Um, and then we never look at the research ever again. And why is that? So are we saying that user research has no value? I don't think so. Um, and I think that that's one of the things that research operations people, um, you know, they're the people who really believe in your work. So research ops people are like, you're hidden in your back pocket superstars because we 
100% believe in what you do. So what we want to see is we want to see that people can um, access good research, done good research. We want to get it out to people and we want to be able to share it and use it again if we need to. Using it again is a, is a novel thing. Um, and so one of the things, one of the ways it transforms is, first of all, you tell a researcher that someone else could read their research in four years' time and, um, and they're not going to know anything about it. Um, and that changes how you think about what you're writing down. It changes how you think about the research that you're doing. And, and it can ask, open up some interesting conversations with researchers about quality and the time that they have to do good work. Because if you are going to invest in it, then maybe actually we should take the time. Um, maybe we shouldn't be doing research in a day. Maybe we should take a little longer. Can you refer to research again and reuse it? Should you refer to research again and reuse it? All of those questions come up. There's a fabulous little uh, thing called research shelf life. And, um, you know, how long should we keep a piece of research and how long should we be referring to it again? And libraries open up all of that stuff. From a business perspective, it's radically transformational because you suddenly pay a lot of attention to the way the research is being picked up, used and consumed. And the thing that I've discovered, you know, at my previous role in, in a previous um, job was actually uh, just, you know, uh, working with my team to design and build and run a user research library. And the thing that we discovered was that user research is not very user-centered. The people who are reading the research, who are consuming it, tend not to be researchers. And so they'll often read a piece of research and go, okay, well, this is fine. Now what do I do? And so if you have a library, they have someone to ask and go back to them and say, oh, hey, um, so I got all the research, but now I don't know what to do with it. And so that opens up new avenues of, of understanding how people um, do knowledge transfer. So there's actually a whole academic field out there called knowledge transfer. <laughs> you can go read about it. And um, it is a process like science communication. How do we get people to understand what it is that we're trying to say? And so having that attention to that end of the pipeline of user research is interesting as well and can produce, you know, new ways of, of um, developing work. So like one of the things I've noticed, for example, over the years is that um, one of the most powerful things you can do is actually to produce a video. Uh, so journey maps are, are difficult difficult to consume, but you watch a person actually going through a full process. That's really compelling. You can see what it is you need to do. Any any person, even without research literacy, can come to that and say, this is what we need to do. So I think they're transformational. They do... There's, there's a cost. There's a hefty cost involved in doing it. So you have to be ready. Um, I would say not to, could start with a spreadsheet. If you're a little team of one, um, start with a spreadsheet and a little database and, and use it for yourself. If you are starting to look at how you want to share research and share it out and you've got a large-ish kind of team working to an organisation, then looking at um, that pipeline of, of research and are we building a library for our researchers? Are we building a library for consumers of research? What are we doing here? Um, so if you are in a, a big-ish organisation like I'm in right now, then I want to get that research out to the whole organisation organization. So I need a mechanism to do that. And I need it to be, you know, user friendly, have a good interface and all of those good user centered design types of, um, of, of things. So that's where you end up doing a whole bunch of research on researchers and research on people who consume research. It's all very meta. <laughs> Thank you so much, Bridget. So what are the future of research ops and various growth opportunities for junior researchers in this field? Look, I think they're I think the future is very bright. Um, 
I think the marvelous thing about research ups is it's a really multidisciplinary field. Um, you know, I came to it because I had been doing work in metadata management and data architecture, and um, you know, I had an interest in in knowledge management. Um, I had an interest in research. So you can have a really broad spectrum of skills. Uh, and, you know, whenever I've uh, done induction with someone and brought them into the team, I've actually said to them, look, whatever it is that you want to do in life, the stuff that gets you out of bed in the morning, you're probably going to be able to find that in a, in a research ops team. So you tell me what gets you out of bed in the morning and I'll find you the right job within research ops. So there's a lot there. Um, growth opportunities. I think Research Ops is growing and growing and growing. Uh, so if you're interested in it, um, certainly go into it. Um, I'd say there are two divergent, two different paths there. There's a research field and there's a research operations field, and they're quite different. Thank you, Bridget, for sharing all these wonderful insights with us. So could you please share with us how does your typical day look like or any interesting stories? <laughs> Yes. So I don't know if you've noticed that the eight pillars have about four pillars that are all about people. And then there's four pillars that are pretty much all about tech. <laughs> so my my day, I'm supporting 15 different teams doing research. Um, a lot of my days, meetings and talking to people. Um, so today, for example, I had a conversation about um, privacy impact assessments and I had a conversation with someone else about uh, governance and I had a conversation with someone about tools. We had a bunch of people who joined who needed access to tools I gave them the access and then you know let them know these are the rules and um, here's here's some how-tos and here's a little guide um, I often do a little research ops in induction. Here's our ways of working. Um, we're building a handbook, for example, for research and operations in the department. It's actually going to be public. You'll be able to find it on GitHub. Uh, so it's exciting. But so when people come in, we need to sort of say, you know, here's all those tools, templates and guides. Um, this is what we can do for you. So I did a bit of that today. Uh, I was in a, I was facilitating a little bit in, in a, a workshop and uh, provided some tech support today. I received a request for some research and so um, went around and had a chat to a whole bunch of people to find um, lots of different types of research resources. And uh, what else did I do today? I put together um, some work on a maturity model for a research library. Have I got any interesting stories? Um, <laughs> let me think. Um, I think Kate Towsey, who started the Research Ops community, probably has the most interesting one for for user re for um, Research Ops, which is um, she has Cake Ops as an actual job. <laughs> um, it's one of the tasks that you do in a research operations team. So a lot of, as I said, there's a whole bunch of people working there, looking looking after people and, and making sure that they're doing okay. Um, and so part of that is celebrating. And how do we how do we operationalize celebrating when there's so many people uh, spread across so many areas? So she has cake ops. Um, I think that's lovely. I think my stories are probably not as not as interesting. Um, more about you know uh, how research operations really sort of um, can transform people's ideas of user research is and human centered design and that sort of stuff. So there's a, a, a favorite thing I have seen um, where uh, someone uh, in the research ops community had a had a library and they were able to share. Um, a video safely. So, you know, human research has so many rules about how you share 
um, personally identifiable information. And so they had a, a platform where they could actually share a video and um, they were able to show that to the CEO and the CEO saw the video and went, right, let's change that and changed it straight away. They were able to go back to the research participant and say, you did this in this company and now you've just, you know, you've changed the lives of millions of people. That's a nice story. That's wonderful, Bridget. Thank you for sharing all these great insights with us. So let's conclude this show by you recommending three favorite books of yours. Also, people who inspire you the most in this space. Ah, oh, okay. Um, oh, gosh. Um, well, people who, who uh, inspire me, um, I think Mikey Clip. Uh, so her name is M-A-I-K-E is her first name and Clip K-L-I-P. She uh, is a research lead uh, for the Dutch government, I think it is. And uh, she's been using the eight pillars of user research to um, inform her strategies for scale for research for about five years. And she's been blogging it the whole time. I think if you want to look up anything, I would look up that. I really like Kim Potter's work. She's been doing lots of um, lots of work on research operations and sharing quite a bit on her blog. And she's also been doing some uh, translations in the research ops community, which I'm very grateful. Um, oh, people who who inspire me. Um, do you know there are like the research ops community has, as I said, about nine thousand individuals in it, and um, each individual inspires me every day um they get in together you know someone has a problem someone jumps in and says here's what I've been doing let's jump on a call and see if we can work it out and um and I think that openness and willingness to like you know we have this value in the community which is to to, um put in more than you take out and and the fact that everyone lives that is just it really I find it really humbling it kind of makes me want to cry <laughs> um, just about every day watching that and so um, I think the people in the community inspire me books well <laughs> there aren't that many books on research operations so I'll I'll say there's a there's a few really good good ones uh, in relation to um, architectures for knowledge management one I really like um, is there is an article on pace layers uh, for vocabularies and so you can apply the same sorts of uh, approaches as I do to your actual vocabulary. So how do you think about the the way you structure um, a library system? You can sort of think about it in terms of the things that don't change very much and then the things that do change quite a lot. Um, I like uh, that article. You can find it on Google just by Googling pace layers for vocabularies. On the same thing, I've got this book here and um, I'm going to hold it up for you, Tej, but um, everyone else will have to hear about it. There's a book called The Clock of the Long Now, Time and Responsibility, and it's by Stuart Brand. Um, so the the Long Now project um, actually put together the pace layers framework and it can be applied in so many different ways. So I've applied it for research. And, but you can pick it up and um, be inspired by it as much as I am. Uh, another one I really like, and I'll just give a plug for it because I wrote some stuff in it, <laughs> um, is the Research Practice book by uh, Greg Bernstein. Uh, there are heaps of people in the field who have written really practical information in this book about how to do it in real life. Um, I think that's fabulous. It's a book you want to have beside you. Um, another one I really like is um, a book by Laura Klein, which is called Build Better Products. So I would definitely get into that one uh, if that's helpful. Those are my faves that are sitting by my bedside. <laughs> so. Thank you so much, Bridget, for sharing all these wonderful recommendations and great insights on research shops with us. So we are looking forward to host you again in our upcoming episodes. Thanks for your time. Thank you so much. 